0: This week in HPC. BioIT world wrap-up.
1: And Nurse Buy's another Cray Super.
0: It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. And This Week in HPC is distributed by our friends at top500.org and available on iTunes and Stitcher. How's it going, Michael? Very well, Addison. So I was uh, on the East Coast this week, uh, and part of that, I visited one of my favorite conferences on the
1: agenda with uh, BioIT World yeah, bioIT world's always an interesting conference. Uh, it's It's very application centric to that domain, but it's a lot of HPC there and a lot of sort of cutting edge uh, application software hardware going on at the that's being presented at, at that uh, that event.
0: Well, you hit it spot on, and, and that's really what I like most about that conference is that what I find that when you narrow down to a particular application, ver- at least a particular vertical market, there's still multiple applications within there. BioIT is diverse. You're talking about molecular modeling and pharmacology and, uh, and genomics. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into bioIT, but at least by segmenting it down to a particular vertical market, the conversations are really dominated by the the real science, the real applications that are being done. And then you know, you've got all the hardcore HPC behind it. It's the, the sponsors, uh, the, the exhibitors are all the, the usual suspects from across the HPC ecosystem. But, but we're all here talking about bio and life sciences this week.
1: Yeah. And there's so much going on in that field right now. They're, they're- they're constantly just figuring out how to use more and more of the compute power and, and the sophisticated software to do more interesting applications. I mean you were you attended some of the sessions there. What what do you think are some of the highlights? Well, obviously,
0: you get an emphasis on data and analytics now, but again, as it applies to bio and a lot of the biostatistics, when you get into genomics and you're looking at you know uh, uh, strings of genomes, well, when it's all laid out linearly like that, you don't get a sense of how the molecule is folded together. There was a wonderful keynote uh, at Sloan by Sloan Kettering talking about this as it applies to cancer research, where you're looking at mutations in one point, uh, one spot on the genome, and then when they trigger a mutation in another spot in the genome consistently, you can assume that when the molecule is folded together, those are um, two uh, proteins, essentially, that are touching each other, uh, and uh, and therefore a mutation in one is causing a mutation in the other. And I, I found that to be very interesting in terms of the biostatistical analytics work that you're able to do on these Large databases to start looking for those relationships and thereby infer the shape of the molecule, which has everything to do with uh, uh, with uh, with the science uh, going into the cancer research.
1: and yeah, some of that research is progressing so quickly, and you sort of wonder how. How fast it'll make it into into clinical practice? I mean, some of this stuff has obviously it's been going on for years and sometimes decades, um, and sometimes it's it's much slower to get into practice. Was was there anything there where you, you thought was was very close to clinical, or was a uh, a presentation for that was talking about stuff that was in practice at this point? There there were really whole tracks
0: for a, a lot of the clinical side, and, and I didn't attend many of those. I was, I, I really spent two. Tuesday evening, and most of Wednesday there, it was still going on on Thursday, uh, but but there was that side of it there, and, you know, it's, it's a big conference. You can't go attend all of it. Uh, another big th- thread I did see coming out was the use of cloud, uh, maybe just behind big data. Big data and analytics was kind of the top one, but there was a lot of talk about cloud, and from a real practical application point of view, with uh, the assumption that, all right, yes, we're doing more cloud, but here's everything that's still a practical consideration with regards to that, in particular with regards to data movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, cloud, as you mentioned, it's it's been a, a big deal for this vertical especially. I mean, the, there were some uh, some early adopters that uh, I think kind of put it on the map, and it seems like it's it's just well-suited for a lot of cloud applications. I mean, there's not a lot of penetration overall, but uh, whenever everybody talks about HPC in the cloud, it seems like... Um, you know, bio is sort of the poster child there, so it's not surprising they they emphasize that. It I think, you know, some of these some of these organizations are not sort of kind of classical HPC centers, and I think it's very appealing to like look at, at cloud platforms and think that, you know, this is the way I want to go. This is how I want to develop my IT infrastructure. Yeah, Cycle
0: Computing was one of the platinum sponsors of the event. They had a big booth. It was quite busy. Jason Stowe, uh, the CEO of Cycle, got to do the introduction to the Sloan Kettering uh, keynote. And Mm -hmm. with regards to the cloud bursting, there was falling in line with a lot of what we've said about the use of cloud all along, which is that it's most useful for uh, an end user who needs a lot of additional capacity capacity or capability, but not all of the time. They, they just need it in, in bursts. And that's where it is coming up, is it's a capability play. It's not a cost play. Right. We're not replacing your other infrastructure. But if, but if you do have the occasional very big job uh, and you don't want to get all those resources in-house, that's where, uh, that's where we are seeing it. And, and Cycle had some uh, case studies around that. Amazon Web Services, also a major sponsor on the cloud side. We saw them and a lot of traffic in there booth, probably the biggest booths, uh, or at least the busiest ones, and they may have been advantaged by location, but Lenovo was face-to-face with IBM across the aisle, and that
1: that was interesting to really see them both really going full steam, a lot of activity in both of those booths. Yeah, it was probably a lot of the users were wondering what what was being offered. Now there's there's sort of uh, IBM sort of has reinvented itself over the last year in this area, and of course Lenovo is just sort of new to the whole thing. So there might have been a curiosity factor there, but also, you know, those are those are two big companies, and they're going to garner a lot of attention anyway.
0: Well, IBM does have a lot going in this space. They they've relaunched their Spectrum storage based on GPFS. They've got everything going on with Open Power. Now Intel was obviously there also. Uh, with uh, uh, you know with the Intel based solutions but it, it's an interesting uh, world out there in bio IT just as it is everywhere and in fact I, I was live tweeting from Chris Daggs very Chris Dagg of bio Team gives an annual presentation that's very popular called HPC in the trenches that are just his own personal views of what's going on right now and uh, uh, he, he went through 140 some slides in an hour and he, he really moved so I'm <laughs> tweeting as fast as I can you can go look it up at Addison Snell on Twitter and see some of my reactions. But one of the first things he said was right in line with this, which is a major challenge for users: is now coping with the diversity of computational architectures being offered.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a challenge for anybody, but uh, for somebody in this domain who is, you know, doesn't specialize in HPC, uh, it, it probably looks daunting now with you know the multi-core, the many-core architectures, the accelerators, you know, the, the, the different interconnects, the different architectures now that are coming into play, it, it, it probably does look daunting, and probably is sort of like where BioI team makes its money, they're sort of consultants to this whole area, and then they can sort of bridge that gap. Another interesting thing that uh, Chris brought up in his
0: talk was that object storage, in his view, is definitely the way of the future, uh, and that uh, if you're not on it now, you better start getting ready for it. And that was interesting and really dovetailed nicely into a lot of the uh, storage offerings that we saw on display uh, from, uh, uh, from DDN in particular. I, I thought they had a, a nice presence and received a good shout-out from Chris Dagg in terms of their work on hyperconvergence. Uh, uh, Mellanox also, he called out the same way, saying they had a nice hyper-converged uh, uh, path. But he said the big challenge is going to be as more collaboration goes on and you've got data that's at different sites, the data movement, uh, especially if you go beyond about 10 kilometers, uh, it just starts killing you. Everyone brags about the bandwidth that you have in your system or that you have even across your compute facility. But you know what's your internet bandwidth
1: in and out of your site? And Uh, And that winds up being a a big Achilles heel to long-distance collaboration. Yeah. Well, it looks like there's a lot going on there. I'm glad you got a chance to attend. And, uh, yeah. Uh, there, there certainly was. One other thing I should sneak
0: in with the with the focus on analytics. My understanding is Cray Eureka uh, was in good standing looking at a possible best of Show award. And we're going to wait for the final announcement on that. It'll probably be out around the time this podcast is up. But uh, Cray also
1: with Eureka, had a very nice presence. Ah, oh, excellent. yeah, their their data analytics platform, they yeah uh, you know you don't hear a lot about it, but with Best in show, maybe it'll be getting some more attention now. And speaking of Cray. And speaking of Cray, yeah, the other sort of biggish news for the week is they, they, they sold yet another system. It seems like they sell big systems like every other week. They're, they're doing quite well. This was actually not a huge system by today's you know, multi-petaflop standards. It's it's uh, basically a replacement for Hopper over there at NERSC, uh, the Hopper is like a one petaflop system, so you know, just a, a moderately huge system. Um, and this is sort just, of like just a. just a taster. Yeah, just a taster. This is actually a bridge system from Hopper, which is going to be retired later this year, to their quarry system, which is which is going to be tens of petaflops, uh, and that's going to be coming out uh, sometime in 2016. So this is, uh, this is sort of a, a mid. They're actually calling it Cori Phase 1 as sort of a, a teaser into the Cori system, but uh, unlike that system, it's not going to have any Xeon Phi's. it doesn't look like. It's just going to be straight uh, Xeons, in this case, the, the newest Intel Haswell Xeons, um, and that'll, it'll total up to it looks like, uh, like one, one petaflop or so.
0: Well, you know, that interests me because you would think that if it's going to be a setup for core, you really want to be matching that architecture so you can start application development, although it is consistent with Intel's messaging around Xeon vis-a-vis Xeon Phi, which is a lot of the vectorization work can be done anywhere within the Xeon family.
1: Right, and one of the things they are going to have in this new one is, is their new burst buffer technology, at the NVram RAM. Burst buffer for, for high bandwidth uh, I.O., Uh, especially for the data intensive work, uh, they're going to put that into this new phase one system, and that's going to be in Corey as well. That's that's a lot of the... A lot of the performance is going to hinge on that for a lot of these codes that are sort of data-constrained. So there will be that side of it. And, yeah, no, no Xeon 5s, but um, they, they might have some help there. They're, they might buy a few and stick them in there and, and get some mm-hmm. get some work there. But they, basically, this is a replacement for the, the Hopper system because that is set for retirement, so they need something there. Um, and the Intel the Intel Xeon is, is basically will be a, a almost a transparent... Uh, uh, upgrade for for that system. And then Corey comes in when uh, sometime in 2016. That's uh, I think they're they're shooting for mid 2016, um, and and again this is going to be their their first system at NERSC with the self-hosted process with the Xeon Phi's that uh, don't don't operate as accelerators. So that uh, that's going to be uh, a, a pretty big deal for them. You know you know NERSC has been pretty conservative about accelerators. They they never bought into the GPU. Um, accelerator add-ons for, for any of their, their top line systems. They they, they want this uh, memory model that suits uh, all of their all of their or a lot of their users that, that don't want to do that programming work that would be required for coprocessors. So they've stuck with the Xeons and now that with the Xeon fives that are self-hosted that that makes a nice path for them or at least an easier path for for all their all their uh, their users and there's a considerable number of users at nurse so they have to be cognizant of that so they've been sort of conservative about it but that hasn't kept them from from building these big systems. They don't have the biggest systems in the DOE but uh, you know some of the, some of the bigger systems that are just using these uh, these Xeon and Xeon Phi systems they, they've got they've got those well and this has been consistent with uh,
0: Intel's evolving positioning around xeon 5 but it, it shouldn't be thought of as an accelerator or a coprocessor it's a processor in its own right and with regards to nurse being conservative you know it just could be that their application workload their particular set of codes uh, is, is going to be best served by these native processors and uh, and that's the path they're sticking with
1: yeah I think that is I mean they've got a very diverse set of workloads I think they've got more users in any other in any other center. So they, they sort of have to serve everybody and sort of the, the least common denominator sort of thing that, that that maybe makes them a little more conservative. But yeah. I mean, a, a lot of these workloads, they, they're, they're legacy workloads. They, they would take a lot of effort to, to port to new architectures. Now, this, this is a new architecture coming out in 2016, but it's not going to be as much work as, as porting to a, a true co-processor. So, this, this eases that transition a little bit. And, um, and this phase one system maybe will help that along with some of these newer technologies that are, are going to be included. All right. Well, thanks
0: a lot, Michael. I appreciate it. It was another interesting week out there. Uh, So thanks for helping me wrap it up. Thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC.